Hello, everyone. I'm Carmen Poliafito, and I'm happy to welcome back to Retina Synthesis Dr. Roger Goldberg of Bay Area Retina in Northern California. He's also a voluntary faculty member at the California Pacific Medical Center. Roger, how are you doing? Uh, doing very well. Uh, great to be back on Retina Synthesis. It was nice to connect with you and lots of other people at uh, Hawaiian Eye and Retina uh, in Kauai a uh, week or two ago, a few weeks ago. Yes. Great, great meeting. Um, today, we're going to talk about furisumab. It's a year since it's been approved, and we'd like to go over some of the data that suggests that it is a an effective new mode of therapy for macular disease, and then talk about how we're actually using it. In what cases does it does it is it indicated? Uh, and let's start with neovascular AMD. And before we dive into that, what's the pathophysiology of furisumab? Uh, well, so furisumab is a bispecific antibody. So you know, as you know, antibodies have this Y-shaped shape, uh, and typically the two ends of the Y are you know are the business ends of the antibody, and those usually uh, target the same molecule. And what the folks at Roche and Genentech did is they came up with a molecule where one arm of the antibody targets VEGFA, like, you know, like our existing agents, and the other arm targets angiopoietin-2 or ANG2. And ANG2, you know, I kind of think of it as the bad cop in this competitive uh, competition with ANG1, which is the good cop, both of them interplay with the TI2 receptor on endothelial cells. And uh, ANG1 is a uh, promotes vascular stability and homeostasis. ANG2, actually, it, it blocks ANG1. And so you get kind of loss or loosening of the tight junctions. You get uh, leukostasis and, and, and uh, leukocyte migration out of the blood vessels, increased permeability, increased sensitivity along the VEGF receptor pathway, so increased sensitivity uh, to VEGF-A isoforms. Um, so these two molecules can work in conjunction, these two pathways, excuse me, can work in conjunction with each other to help manage our patients with retinal vascular diseases. Furisumab, um, has now been approved, it was approved just about a year ago, almost to the day actually, when we're recording this. So it's been on the market for about a year. It's approved right now for wet AMD and diabetic macular edema. And um, I think there are kind of two components that um, have people excited. And um, there was actually a great talk, not by myself, but looking at kind of real world usage of furisumab, and we do see it kind of every, you know, not only every quarter, but every month and probably every week, it's slowly gaining market share as the um, use case for it, you know, and its position on the therapeutic algorithm continues to expand and migrate kind of earlier and earlier up our treatment algorithm. So um, the, the AMD data comes from Tanaya and Lucerne, the DME data comes from two pivotal studies called Yosemite and Rhine. And in both of these studies, um, they were both compared to 
of flibercepter ILEA dosed on label. So, you know, a set of loading doses followed by every eight week dosing. Whereas the, um, the farisimab arms in the AMD trial, they were allowed to be treated eight, 12 or 16 weeks uh, after a loading phase. In the DME studies, uh, there were two different arms, one with loading doses and followed by every eight week dosing and another one where uh, a shorter loading phase and they could be adjusted almost in kind of like a regulated treat and extend type protocol that they call the variable arm or personalized treatment interval. And, and in, in the DME uh, study there, they could go from anywhere from four weeks, as frequently as every four weeks if necessary, all the way out to every 16 weeks. And what we saw in both Tanai and Lucerne for AMD, Yosemite and Ryan and DME, is that uh, farisimab achieves excellent visual results, non-inferior to a flibercept dosed on label, and excellent anatomic results uh, on the AMD side, really kind of overlapping, I'd say, with the uh, flibercept arms. But of course, 70 plus percent of patients are able to go three or four months between injections. So uh, patients need uh, much fewer injections, many fewer injections. And in the DME side, very similar result. Actually, the anatomic results, I think, on, on the central subfield thickness and proportion of patients with intraretinal fluid or CST less than 325. It does seem to be um, uh, an excellent drying agent and, and suggestive that it's actually a little bit stronger of a drying agent um, than a flibercept. So, uh, and that was seen kind of honestly right at the uh, kind of after an equivalent number of loading doses. So a true head-to-head -head phase, we saw that anatomic benefit as well as at one year, and now we've seen it out to two years as well. So uh, excellent drying agent, um, comparable efficacy, uh, but with fewer treatments. And, and then kind of on the real world side, we know that brolicizumab came out also was an excellent drying agent, also seemed to be kind of, you know, non-inferior in terms of visual acuity with, with fewer injections, but brolicizumab or B of U, um, not long after launch, was hampered by inflammation and a, uh, a severe type of inflammation called vasculitis or an inclusive vasculitis. And that's really limited the use of brolicizumab. Hardly any of it is being used uh, currently. And uh, fortunately now with farisimab, uh, we have not seen any safety signal either from the clinical trials, no cases of occlusive retinitis or vasculitis. And, and in the real world as well, we're now talking, you know, I think well over 200,000 doses administered. I actually also serve on the uh, safety committee for the ASRS, the REST committee and and uh, again, kind of knock on wood here, but after a year, there does not seem to be any safety issue uh, with farisimab. So what percent of patients can be treated 16 or 12 weeks? Um, so kind of, you know, again, kind of in the clinical trials, it was about three quarters of patients could go um, uh, 12 or 16 weeks. I think in the real world where we use, you know, slightly different criteria, um, 
I suspect it's probably smaller than that in the real world. In part, you know, like in the real world, we're not mandated to just four week steps. I think most of us practice with a treat and extend algorithm where, um, you know, you might add two weeks at a time. So we're, we have the luxury in the real world of having kind of off cycle doses at whether it's at six weeks or 10 weeks or 14 weeks, something in between what would have been allowed in the clinical trial. And, um, and in the, in the, you know, both in my own clinical experience, as well in the kind of real world data from the Truckee study, which is like a consortium of sites looking at, uh, at the use of uh, ferisumab and wet AMD in kind of those most difficult to treat patients, not the treatment naive population that was enrolled in Yosemite and Ryan. Um, again, kind of ferisumab did seem to be a better drying agent and give a little bit extra durability, a couple weeks, um, not, you know, not a couple months of additional durability. But for our patients who are, you know, stuck on every four or six or eight weeks intervals, I think those patients are, you know, very excited to hear, hey, I might be able to go longer uh, between injections. Sounds good to me. How do you use it in diabetic macular edema? So in DME, again, kind of I started with the like most recalcitrant patients. And um, and interestingly, I, you know, my personal experience is I saw less of a dramatic effect in terms of improved drying ability versus on the kind of recalcitrant wet AMD side where I did see more of a drying effect. Um, but it does seem to be, again, kind of a little bit stronger. And as I've gotten more comfortable with the safety, it's actually moved up my therapeutic algorithm. I presented a neat case uh, at Hawaiian Eye where um, a treatment naive patient came in with pretty florid diabetic macular edema in both eyes. And I treated one eye with vabismo or ferisumab and one eye with aflibercept ilia. And I kind of showed like the monthly comparison over those three monthly loading doses. Um, and I thought that was pretty interesting. Again, kind of Visually, they were about the same. I think anatomically, it was pretty clear, um, uh, clearly a better response anatomically. Are we using six or seven doses a year in diabetic macular edema with ferisumab? Are, sorry, are we, will we? What was the question? Are you? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, you know, some of the patients that I switched over first were patients who needed, you know, who were already on monthly therapy. Uh, or, you know, every six weeks. And so I think most of those patients probably still are, you know, even if I've added, let's say an extra two, three weeks to their interval, they probably will end up with, you know, six, six plus injections. Um, I'm excited actually for, to see some of these treatment naive patients as I've started to, you know, I've loaded them and now I'm extending and I'm really curious to see, hey, after that loading and extension, how far can I extend them? And can I just, you know, will I feel, you know, comfortable that a lot of these patients can just be controlled with, you know, three or four injections a year? And um, and I think, honestly, that's probably a sweet spot because most of these patients, you're still going to want to check them about three to four months a year. I know that there's a lot of work on even longer acting agents, um, six months, you know, nine months, 12 months, but I think most of us will still want to be at least following those patients more regularly. So when we think about the burden of injections, 
there's the injection burden, but there's also the office visit burden. I think most of these patients who are who are requiring treatment probably need about three to four office visits a year, you know, even if there was an ultra long acting agent on board. Anything else we should know about frisimab? Um, I, I also shared, a, I thought, a kind of a neat analysis. A lot of us, based on DRCR protocol T, um, kind of in our minds separate. Oh, there's DME that's, you know, 2040 or better, and there's DME that's 2050 or worse. And that was a pre-specified analysis from DRCR protocol T, which compared Avast and Lucentis and ILEA. And it showed, at least in year one, that ILEA seemed to be a little bit better requiring fewer injections and having a little bit better vision outcome in that 2050 or worse population. So I shared a uh, post-hoc analysis from Yosemite and Ryan looking at the results just in the 2050 or worse population. Remember in that study, your vision could be as good as 2032 uh, to, to get into those studies. So we just looked at the subset of patients 2050 or worse and the, all the graphs and slides and outcomes look basically identical to the overall population, which is to say, you know, 70 plus percent can go three or four months between injections. Anatomic data looks identical uh, in terms of being a little bit better drying agent, even in this difficult population. Vision outcomes, um, you know, basically overlap each other in Yosemite and Ryan in this population. So you can achieve the same results with fewer injections and have great anatomic efficacy. So um, so I thought that was kind of neat because we often think of 2050 or worse DME as its, as its own beast, so to speak. So are you using uh, frisimab as a first-line agent yet? I have started to, yeah. You know, uh, I'm out here in California and, you know, there's a lot of HMO. And so we often have to deal with uh, step therapy and some of the just logistical challenges around giving the patient that you think might be optimal. But um, I certainly have started using it uh, as a first line agent. Well, Roger, thanks a lot for your time today. And uh, we'll tune back in in uh, a number of months to find out how Farisimab continues to expand. Sounds Thank good. Thank, thanks for having me, Carmen.